Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham, a podcast at the intersection of sports, sports media, and Hollywood. I'm the host and executive producer, Ed. In this episode, we speak with Dan Wetzel, a sports reporter, columnist, and podcaster for Yahoo Sports and Yahoo.com. We talk a bit about being in Tokyo, covering the Olympics during a pandemic, before we dive into the big topic I was after, athletes' rights, specifically their media rights in this new name, image, and likeness world we're living in. This is Thinning the Field with Dan Wetzel. Thanks so much. I know you're getting into your busy season, I would imagine, right? The next few months. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty crazy with football and... Yeah, I came out of the Olympics and right into football, so... But it's good. It's did good. you we'll travel? Did you travel to Japan or were you yeah. covering... Yeah, oh, you did? There. Yeah. Wow. What was that like from top to bottom? Uh, it kind of sucked. Uh, I've done... That was my ninth Olympics and... uh basically quarantined i mean they they it was like a pseudo lockdown right you couldn't go out you know they didn't want you going to any restaurants any stores there was like one convenience store you're supposed to go to you could kind of break that but still uh and then most of the restaurants would close at eight yeah uh no bars are open no alcohol is supposed to be served anywhere so just it wasn't a lot of fun but you know you get to work you work a lot the olympics are always about a lot of work which is kind of the, the one side benefit is you get to kind of live in a city for nearly a month that you would normally never live in. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it could be as little as going to the same coffee shop in the morning or getting to know some waiter or bartender or whatever you can do, or just, just wandering around. But yeah, and Tokyo is pretty awesome, but just not to be this time. Here was sort of my theme as I looked at what you do, which is a lot. You do a lot, man. <laughs> you you write so a lot. So we started? Or has this all been on? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's meant to be okay. just total conversational. As I looked at your uh, background and my background, sort of over what are the overlapping circles and sort of the theme here is sort of Hollywood meets sports and specifically yeah. sports media and amateurism is sort of the, uh, for me, what you and I have done sort of top of mind is name, image, and likeness uh, as that wall has come down for college athletes and amateur athletes. So high school kids as well, where, where athletes can now profit off of their name, their image and their likeness and their story. And I looked at, you know, I was looking at some of your work in the area and you wrote a piece back in June about what what it will do as far as recruiting of athletes and you you know focus specifically on college football and you know I think you made a really good point in the article that now that athletes have to consider how much money and exposure they can make off the field that it will likely get some name players some good players to go to a school that uh, they may have not gone to right so they would leave Ohio State to go to Michigan State potentially and, you know, you talk to really smart, you know, sort of marketing and, and media people that said, yeah, you know, it's just it's a one or two people per year are going to choose a different school because they want to be a big fish in a small pond because right. Alabama's crowded, Ohio State's crowded. If USC is really good, it gets crowded. Uh, you know, there are these markets that get crowded in college football. And it really reminded me. So we, we did a film called Undefeated, which was about high school football in memphis 
Yeah. It was a documentary. <clears throat> and you've worked in the doc field. I know you, you know, were part of the Aaron Hernandez doc, which yep. I mean, what a hard, hard, hard story that is. So, you know, thanks for following through and, and getting all that out because it's it's a really complicated, tough story, the Aaron Hernandez story is. But with Undefeated, for us to film these high school kids, we had to have them sign releases that yep. said, hey, we're making a documentary. You have to give us permission to film you. And because it's a documentary, we, you know, we can't pay you to be on camera. And I didn't know this until that production. We were in the state of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee and a lot of other states for kids that are minors. They need proper representation to enter into any contract up up into and including that if they can't have proper representation, the court of the state shall be their representative. This is in the state of Tennessee. And we spent thousands of dollars with legal counsel in Tennessee about how to get these kids cleared, especially the minors, which were most of them when we were filming under 18. And in that, we had to go to court and stand in front of a judge who wanted the kids to understand what they were giving up, that they were giving up just their right for a documentary and no other rights. We couldn't go make a TV show. We couldn't go sell a scripted series of their story to anyone else. All we were doing was filming a documentary. And I had this aha moment because I was also working at ESPN at the time when I realized that the broadcasts that we watch of college sports are illegal, that ESPN, Fox, NBC, CBS, if they're showing amateurs, there is almost no case where anyone has represented the name, image, and likeness rights of these athletes as to the media rights and distribution of the, of the games. So the core for me with this, and, and that's been the courts have been saying this too, with the Ed O'Bannon case, the courts case that was just up with the, with um, the Supreme court and the courts from what I can see are, are being very slow in bringing the hammer down here. But uh, Dan, I don't know how these contracts with, the, the conferences and all the realignment, I don't know how those get redone and fixed without bringing the players to the table because they're, they, they're going to, I think, get their piece of those media rights deals going forward. Well, that is an eventuality, I would think. I'll say this. on It was a great doc undefeated. Bill Courtney's I, I've met a few times. Oh, thanks. Yeah. The heck of a character. To, oh, yeah. To and, you know, and, and, and as good as we showed him being a person and a human in the film. He is that. So that's, yeah. that's one of the really big proud things we have of that. Yeah. He's legit. He's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll take it even further. So I used to, I, I just was watching the little league world series uh, yesterday. Exhibit, uh, exhibit a 15 of uh, what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I used to write this column a long time. I was way early on this. Like, I, I'm sorry. It just doesn't, I know we all like college sports. We all like high school sports, but like, this is still America, right? Uh, and I'm just a believe in free markets. And you look at it and go, this doesn't make any sense. And uh, I used to write, you know, the little leaguers should get paid. Yeah. The little leaguers are, we got 12-year-olds. Disney is making money off of 12-year-olds and not paying them. Yeah. Are we good with that? No, yeah. we're not good with that. If you're on the Disney channel, some of those Disney channel actors are making a fortune, right? Yep. Not only that, you got... They didn't do it this year, but some, a lot of years they have the international. Like, you could have a 12-year-old from Venezuela 
driving ratings for ESPN money. across all the digital platforms. Yeah. Wait, wait what is right. this? We're now we're now exploiting third world children. Like you want to take it to that extent and to suggest like they should pay every kid at the Little League World Series like 500 bucks a game that they're on TV. Right. And I, I, you know, I think the most you could be on is like six times or something like that yeah. and give them three grand and people would lose their minds over this co- this concept. It's ah, this is Little League. Well, the Disney, ch- so isn't a child actor. So isn't a child uh, singer. So isn't like they, they wouldn't dream of doing this to anything else. Yeah. But and, and it goes to college. Well, I get it. We like it and I like it. But I can't in good conscience just sit there and say, yeah, this this guy doesn't deserve to have his name, image, and likeness when just because I like that he's not paid. Like it doesn't, you know, and, and I used yeah. to make that argument. People go crazy. So a lot of people would get it, but I've always well, argued like this doesn't make any sense. It just how 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 does this make sense? Well, you and I, and that's why why I thought this would be a good topic and sort of theme for this. For this interview, because you've done Hollywood, I've done Hollywood, you've done big media, I've done big media, we've we've covered sports from both sides. We understand, you know, you've written a lot of books that have been, you know, adapted into screenplays, you've written a screenplay, you, you, you know, had another movie made off another book. There are so many negotiations for what are called the underlying rights of what we make on the media side, from the book to the human it's based on. We it's people talk about how slow Hollywood is. It is slow because of that process. Those negotiations, getting those rights, getting those contracts done properly and legally is a ton of work. And the big piece is you can't put anything on the screen that you haven't paid for or have some sort of release that says you didn't have to pay for it. Right. And so I went back to. I played at the University of Washington, signed my letter of intent for grant and aid. And then, you know, there's a separate contract you sort of sign for these when you get a scholarship. And then I did some research before I left ESPN. I was going to do a piece where I did some research on what the current contracts look like. And because it was so thorny legally, what most schools and conferences were telling their universities to put in these contracts with these kids, some of them minors, was leave it silent. Do not bring up the name, image, and likeness issue. So they were just going silent on it because it was impossible to say anything was going to be fair. So that's going to get blown up. And I was in the NFL, uh, the second CBA under the free agency contract. I was in the NFL part of the union when we had to ratify a collective bargaining agreement because the TV contracts were up. And the TV folks were saying, we're not doing it unless we know we have peace with our players. I don't see how in this next round and then as as Texas, Oklahoma, SEC, the Alliance, all that other stuff shakes out. If I'm ESPN, Fox and those folks, I've got to have those everyone at the table saying, here's we have to have a plan. This Some of this has to go back to the athletes. It's just not going to work the other way anymore. Don't you uh, think? I mean, how does it 100%, get through? I, I, I think that there's well, there's certainly plenty of people uh, on top of that argument. And it's a very difficult argument to counter. Um, and, you know, I think the thing with the NCA, and not really the NCA, but just the college is, because people hate the NCA, but it's really your local college. Your yeah, no, the college is individually and collectively yeah. is conferences run but, it. Yeah. You know, pig, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? And, uh, well, but that's starting to change. Com- you know, Dan, I, I have to say, because I, 
I played in the modern era. So I played when ESPN was all around and we, you know, it was just getting into, you know, early internet. And then I was, you know, part of it at CBS, ABC and ESPN, where we started, went from covering four games a week to 14 games a week. We were covering when I left college football at ESPN, just the explosion of that coverage. And that was part of when I left you know, I, I had and still do have some issues with um, with health and safety. And a lot of it was because these guys weren't being paid. And I was. So it wasn't just the health and safety for me. It was I knew that they had not been represented legally and also fair market value for their name and image likeness for these hundreds of million dollar deals with my employer and their universities. That that was a big one for me when I left. I just not, knew not only were they not we didn't, ha- we didn't have those rights. But they were prohibited from making any other deal. I know. That's the hog. That's uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, you had you had Jim Delaney, the commissioner of the Big Ten, take a twenty million dollar bonus for a media rights deal he negotiated. Mm, man, twenty million dollars in bonus money while prohibiting a guy zero to even- Justin Fields. Zero. Telling Justin Justin Fields, Fields, not only do you get zero from all our TV deals, you're not allowed to go get a job. You're not allowed to sell your jersey. You're not allowed to sell your autograph. You can't go down to a car dealer on a Sunday or a chicken wing joint in the BW3s near campus and sign autographs for an hour and draw a crowd. We prohibit your economic rights. We own your rights. So you that, can't make a buck, and I just made twenty million. I know, and that's what one guy, the, one guy, <laughs> one guy, and he goes, "Ah, oh, I'm a genius. Look at I sold the media rights. Uh, I'm not saying it wasn't a good deal, but what are we kidding me? And so, you're so, telling someone you can't make a living, and I can make all my living off you, and that's what's attracted the Jeffrey Kesslers, and that's what attracted the Michael Hosfelds, these lawyers." And that's what has had left like Brett Kavanaugh at the Supreme Court in an opinion. Just I mean, just opening it up, going they push so far and refuse to budge on anything. Do you remember like five, six years ago? We talk about this on our on our podcast a lot when they college, were they, college they, football inquirer, the college football inquirer. There you the, go. There's the your pop. opposition. Yeah, the opposition to stipends remember the stipend was going to end oh my god the stipend we're going to give these guys 200 a month but but at the cost of living at usc is like it's they, they get 330 dollars and the iowa state kid gets 208 i know, oh my god, it's, it's, oh, I know. they went crazy we oppose stipends we had a guy in college we didn't go to a bowl game over the holidays he could not fly back home to texas from seattle just couldn't afford it, couldn't do yep. it. And they had to open the dorms for him and, and some other students who couldn't go home to be able to stay on campus over the holidays. Couldn't go home. Just didn't have the money to do it. When you're trying to control someone else's thing and then taking all the money, you go, come on now. And that's right. what got them. The NCAA, the, the college, the college administrators wouldn't work with the with anybody. It became so untenable that now they're dealing with a litany of lawsuits and a basically a generation of college sports fans who roll their eyes at this idea. You know, people used to go, well, look at how much money Nick Saban's making. Well, I can justify Nick Saban's salary real quick. I can show you that money's he's, he's underpaid. I can't justify a commissioner making 20 million on a contract. Yeah. There was a, a thousand guys could have negotiated that. I mean, I have a product that has been built a hundred years for a hundred years and I'm selling it. 
it's not hard to sell that thing. Right. Especially uh, with, with real competition across four or five major right. corporations. It, 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 yeah. You're not just a, Nick right. Saban makes a ton of money for the University of Alabama. Yeah. Um, and I was saying Jim Delaney didn't do a good job making money, but at some point you're like, and that's that's what I really think is turned on college football and college athletics and why they're in a, a tough place. They don't have the sympathy card. They don't have they just don't have a card to play anymore. So here's what I sort of as I was leaving ESPN and now I sit outside outside in, but I do really still follow a lot of the stories around specifically college football, but just college sports in general, because I'm an ex-athlete. I covered it for years. I'm fascinated by it. So now that the wall's broken and and players now can take advantage of their name, image, and likeness, there's two levels of sponsorships, right? There's local sponsorships. You mentioned they can go to the auto dealership or whatever. And there's national sponsorships where they can start doing deals with huge national brands like we started to see. And then you go to a place, and I'm just going to pick a school because it's here in my state in California, which has some financial issues around funding public schools, including universities. But so now you go to Fresno State and you say, okay, Fresno State, for you to compete against USC or these other schools that you're you know, in the same division competitively with, you now have to build a whole department to help us recruit and teach and push our student athletes and help them monetize their name and image and likeness, because that's what all the schools are doing, right? They're saying, hey, we'll help you do this. And I think it's smart. I think it gets the schools involved. So you're adding this whole other department and also all the compliance because there's still all the rules that are going to go along with how that money can come and you know all these other things to diminish their revenue. Because not only now are they having to let some of those sponsorship dollars, both local and national, go to the players instead of the institution and the fund and the coach's salary. But once the players also start taking a bite out of the media rights revenue, now you're telling a school like Fresno State and many others, your revenue's going 30, 40, 50% south potentially, and you have extra costs to stay in the game. And here's what I'll ask, Dan, how many teams and schools can play at a level where they have a chance to make the playoffs in college football in five years from now? Aren't so upside down financially trying to compete because of coaches' salaries and the, the ballooning of staff members, the, the cost of insurance. I mean, that's going through the roof on football, the cost of insurance. How many teams can keep doing it? I don't know, but that's the free market. That's the market to try to subvert that. First off, I don't think the schools have to help at all and build the whole thing. Them, oh, I, but, I, but, but I think towards your article, though, I think they have to because other then they don't have that advantage. If eh, Kids uh, will figure it out. Here's what the colleges like to do. They want to babysit everything. First off, dismantle your 14-person compliance department. They created so many rules. They created an industry of compliance officers to follow through on mundane, stupid rules that never should have existed if you just let somebody work. Yeah. Let let it go. If, if you're a, yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. a sociology yeah. major at Fresno State, and you want to go start working at the Applebee's near campus as a waiter. No one's in between that relationship, right? You don't have to go tell the damn sociology dean. Right. You just go do it. You want to start your company, you do it. College sports wants to babysit and nanny state everything to the point where it's like, well, they they might they might work with someone who doesn't pay them. So, well, they'll figure it out. Okay? What about all your other students? You used to hear the dumbest argument. 
what will they do if these kids have to pay taxes? They don't, <laughs> They'll they, learn what the real world's like. Yeah. I, you, well, you, guess you, what? They probably already had a job and they right. have to do taxes. Like everyone has to do taxes. Deal with it. Are you saying your student athletes are too stupid to do taxes? Are you saying they're too stupid to figure out how to do business? Are you saying they're too, let them figure it out. Well, even one, even one step further, how much better off is a young person if they know how to hustle, make money, pay their taxes, 100%. Keep, keep a checkbook, keep all of that, and they have a fallback of a scholarship potentially, where at least they have their housing and you know board covered. You know, that's actually, as you say that, I realize what a great education opportunity is for them. I watched. Uh, so go back to Little League World Series. There's a kid there yesterday, Gavin Ulin. That's his name. He was on the Michigan team. They won. They talked during the th- during the late innings. They showed him and they talked about how he has a lawn mowing business. Okay, that's amazing. Charges yeah. forty bucks a lawn. He has ten ten lawns, and he mows every week. He mows ten lawns in uh, Taylor, Michigan, for forty bucks, four hundred bucks a week. Kids that's 12, awesome. Okay, oh, he couldn't do it this week because he was at the Little League World Series. So right. His grandpa had to, that. Was kind of the fun story. Guess what? If one of the houses doesn't pay Gavin, you know what Gavin figures out when you're twelve? Don't mow his lawn again. Right. Okay. That's how it works in the world. Stop trying to do everything for them. They 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 want to create jobs for themselves. That's the always the thought process in college sports. How can we spend more money on my salary? How can I have more assistance? Yeah, well, how can I have a bigger office? Get out. I of don't the think way. that's. I don't think that's just college sports, though. I think that's sort of. Uh, well, uh, that's a lot of large in institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just uh, let them do it. You don't yeah. need all that stuff here's where I pivoted towards being aggressive on the university side and how to survive all of this and thrive. I covered the university of Nebraska a ton, just was there all the time and, and got to really know and like the university. A lot of name image and like this money in that state. Are you kidding me? I mean, just huge stuff, yeah. just huge stuff. And nationally, it's a great national brand as well in, in Absolutely. Florida, places in California, you know, a lot of these guys could travel and do pretty well uh, in Nebraska, but I was walking through, I think it's the Tom Osborne Center now. Um, and I walked by a huge door that said life skills department. And I, and I just stopped and I thought, well, that's sort of a broad term, but it, it, it means a lot. So I went in and we actually did a story that weekend during our game. And I interviewed the man at the time who was running the life skills department, which was founded in the athletic department back in the day like before Osborne, I think. And it was because all of these kids were coming in with all of these requirements with, with sports and their academics. So they built it in the athletic department where it is your checkbook, laundry, uh, budgets, resumes, how to get a job. I mean, it's a really incredible curriculum that since it started in the athletic department is now campus-wide. So every freshman Great. for a year have to take life skills and I exactly, I think it's amazing. And it's been a reason that Nebraska has gotten people from California and Texas and stuff because families come and say, oh, our son or daughter is going to learn how to do all of this along with their education. You know, it's a really beautiful, cool thing. I see if I'm an athletic department, you should already be doing that stuff and, and campus-wide, but just social media uh, marketing, just literally offer classes almost to these kids on how to build their influence across social media, how to drive prices. I think you say, we're going to play alongside you rather than tell you what to do and not to do is I think the way, if I'm competing in that world, I think that's the way I try to I get think, a guy. I think all a of that is, is great. I just don't think you have to have it. You have high point university, I think in North Carolina, 
I may be wrong, but I believe that they require every student take a class in sales because everything in life mm. is sales. Mm. I don't care if you work at the biggest bureaucracy in your life, you're trying to at least sell to your coworkers, you're selling mm. to your boss that you deserve. Pro- everything is sales, right? That's how they want. If a school wants to do that, that's great. I just don't think it's it's totally necessary. Now, but to your point, those departments are going to bankrupt the school. Sharing TV revenue would. How many can still field Division One high major football programs? I don't know. Uh, how many can continue to have 30, 36 sports like some of the big schools do or 25? I don't know. I'm callous. I get it. But I remember when I was at college going – why exactly do we give scholarships to cross-country runners? What does a cross-country runner add to this university? What's a field hockey player add to this year? What's a men's soccer player? Yeah, they're not the, football and basketball, both men's and women's, have to operate separately from the rest of the yeah. economy. Nobody wants to hear sports. that argument. Right. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody goes to the games. Nobody care. Nobody knows the name of the coach. No one knows. Do you know how many? Record. Do you know how many baseball games college baseball players are, are playing now? If you go to the finals of the College World Series, sixty. Uh, it's it's. Uh, some of them I think are getting close to the high sixties. Yeah, and and they start in February and go to July from the start of their season till the end. Because we, we, I'm I'm in. Uh, we have a college team, uh, Long Beach State, right down the street. So we go to yeah. their baseball games. I'm like, man, these guys are playing a ton. A ton of and baseball. And you know how many and, – and you have million-dollar baseball coaches. And you know how many scholarships a team is allowed to give? 11.7. Like yeah, yeah, 11. Yeah, yeah, 7. yeah, yeah. Right. That's all you're allowed to give. So you divide up. You got 25 guys on a team. So they're getting, you know – Not a, even half. Yeah. Essentially a third, a little bit more of a third, 40% scholarships. If, you, if it was even, they don't even get that. They play 16. But at what point do you say – there's nothing wrong with having all these teams, but why do we have them? And now, playing it, that much and that long. Yeah. I mean, it's, even it's, just it's, anything like you're what's chasing the your point? tail at that point. Yeah. At some point, it's a business. Why not have one more, you know, one more biology major have a scholarship? Yeah. Why not have one more, uh, whatever, have a scholarship? Um, why so much on athletics? Stanford, okay. Stanford almost got rid of sports, and then there's this huge backlash, and there's this huge thing. You look at Stanford and you go, well, what are these scholarships? Like, there's a sailing team. Uh, whatever. I mean, they're, they're, they had all the ones from the scandal, right? Yeah. Everyone was trying, Aunt Becky's kid was trying to get into stuff and stuff. Right, right, right. These are, these are like set-asides for sports of kids from country clubs and elite families, right? Like, there's a path in for the wealthiest and most privileged kids to get into Stanford because they're good at sailing or fencing or, or squash. Yeah. That the average kid didn't play it. Well, as long as boosters keep writing checks and keeping right, those places but like, why, Should they have that or should it just be a club, something you do? Well, that's, you know, I, I think because I like, went to the University of Washington, I think, I think our rowing teams at Washington, which are, you know, national caliber win championships, I believe they are a club sport still on campus. Um, and it, I think it was a chosen thing where they got under, they got funded by a family that allowed them to be independent. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look into there's it. But college I think there's something, rowing, though. There's I know, but I, I, it's some weird thing where I, I'm not sure the loophole. I'd have to look into it. But there is, I think there is sort of a loophole to make it a club and still be competitive. But you're, but, but they have tons of funding. But, but you have, yeah, under that old where, way. So yeah. where's the funding coming for this team? Uh, rich family. It's that, coming. Yeah. No, it's coming from your football players. 
Well, not in that well, case. I think well, that was the interesting part was they were separate from, so they well, didn't that, actually. That, get, that one program that was rare, might be. Very rare. Right. Most oh, of and, the programs, which are played by kids that families have spent enormous amounts of money on travel sports, you don't just you don't just become a lacrosse player unless you've been practicing for years and years and years, even soccer or any of these sports. You spend enormous amounts of money and your your scholarship and your entire program is being funded by a football program. Well, uh, so one of the most interesting guys that I covered uh, in, in all those years was Jim Tressel at Ohio State. Yeah. And I covered Jim a lot. Uh, just covered a lot of their games and a lot of interviews, went to a lot of their practices, covered several of their bowl games through the year. So that's when you spend more time with these men and, and their teams. One of my last meetings with him, and he was really comfortable with our group and respected what we did and, and how we re- reported things. And he was really stressed. And this was like a Friday before a big game. And he does not show <laughs> his lack of cool because he is, you know, he's in, in control kind of guy and, and does really, a, I think, a, a fantastic job of multitasking and running a lot of different things from what I could tell. But he was pretty stressed. And we sat down and he sort of slumped in his chair. And we thought it was because I think they were playing a pretty good team the next day, but it wasn't Michigan, right? It wasn't that yeah. level game. And they had had some things going on with other kids quitting, a bunch of injuries, a coach got sick, you know, all the stuff you deal with uh, on that. And what was really weighing on him was, uh, I think they had 32 varsity sports. And he said, it has become so big. What we have to do on the football side, the way we have to expand the revenue and just keep going bigger and bigger because we're funding 32 other sports. And, you know, happily doing it. And he was, they were going to be fine and keep all those sports, but I could see the wear and tear on him that oh, all right. so it, it was just so point. aggressive all the time. And he was seeing it from both the football coach, but also the athletic director of how much you had to keep your foot on, on the gas of the beast that is that stadium, that brand to just keep driving that revenue up and up it was wearing on this guy. I could see it. Yeah, and he might be happy to do it, but was Maurice Claret? He didn't get a say. Right. And that's this is my thing right. about the football kids. Right. The reason Ohio State has 32 scholarship sports. I mean, I have no problem with the sports and the, the kids work hard and, and all of that. But the reason they can afford all these sports is because essentially every year they get 85 football players who come from a certain background, make all the money to fund the sports and basketball to a degree of a lot of kids that come from a very different background. And for years, nobody asked. I know. Nobody said, hey, hey, Justin Fields, are you good with that? And you're giving scholarships and funding opulent stadiums and coaching salaries on these sports that very few people play, very few people watch. And this goes on. And so if all of a sudden he says, no, I'm not, you never even gave me that choice. If Ohio State or Stanford wants to fund 36 teams, they have an operational budget of billions. They could fund 300 teams, but the school chooses not to. What they've done is said it's not important enough for us to fund all these sports. Mm. We want you to fund the sport, the football player. And they never gave Justin Fields or anyone Mm. else a chance. So now if all of a sudden the money has to get shared, 
it's not the football pro- player's fault. They should have never had to have been told they have to do it. Your money is going to fund this other thing. Well, why? I'm the one who brags 110000 into the shoe. I'm the one whose jersey they're buying. Why is this sport living off of me? And it's a completely unfair system to them. So if they have to share it and some sports get cut, now I'm not in favor of sports getting cut or kids not playing, but if that's what has to happen, so be it. That's how the market yeah. should work. Yeah, yeah. Nobody is asking the New England Patriots to fund 36 other sports. No one's saying, sorry, right. we can't pay you as much, Cam Newton, this year because we have to fund a crew team. <laughs> well, and also they collectively bargained with collectively Cam Newton bar- and the other players for right. what you have they no do choice. and don't get. This is uh, how yeah, they've done the it. Cut. Yeah. They took millions from these kids not to pay their head coach. Jim Tressel makes the money. Jim Tressel earns the money. And even, even to the degree I said earlier, Jim Delaney earns the money. But you have literally no say. They took they took your money, Ed, too. They oh, took yeah. money you earned oh, yeah. and gave it to a completely different socioeconomic class that's playing a certain totally different sport, and you never had a choice. I say you should have a choice. Here's a tricky one. Uh, yeah, I played for, uh, I think, Don James, my head coach at Washington. I think he was the first seven-figure million-dollar-a-year coach, I believe. Uh, he was really savvy with shoe deals and all that stuff. Here's one that's tricky for me, and we'll leave it at this. And this one's really tricky for me because we go, you know, hindsight. What would have been, could have been. Does Reggie Bush get his Heisman back and why or why not? And I, it just fascinates me that one because it's a tricky, tricky conversation. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think they'll give him his Heisman back because the pressure will be to give him his Heisman back. Reggie's a good guy, the whole thing. That said, there were rules at the time. I right. I have vehemently opposed these rules, as you can see. Right? I mean, I'm literally like but, Reggie but Bush. The, the made, rules were clearly broken. The rules uh, were clearly broken. I'm willing to say house Reggie and, yeah, Bush yeah. should have made he should have been paid ten million dollars. I know his junior year at USC, you, and they should imagine a cross, that guy they have a water polo team. That's how far I'm willing to go. But that said, what, what does Reggie rules. Bush make at that time in this place in Los Angeles, being who he was? With his personality. Is, how old is Reggie Bush right now? Like 35 years old? He's on a Wendy's commercial every time I turn on TV. Right? Yeah. Like he's still getting paid. Yeah. And, and that's great. He deserves it. Reggie's awesome. But as much as I am like, this system was completely unfair to Reggie. Reggie didn't even oh, understand yeah. what he was missing. He didn't understand how much money he lost because the focus has always been on Pete Carroll's making money. And you're not even getting a little bit. When it's like there's an entire athletic department here that shouldn't even exist. There's well, hundreds of people working here that shouldn't even have a job, but they have a job all because of Reggie Bush. When Reggie Bush was there, they sold out the Coliseum. Reggie Bush isn't there lately. A lot less people in the Coliseum. You know, I spent a lot of time uh, around Pete Carroll and USC during that time. Uh, I covered them quite a bit. I was the color analyst on the O2 Orange Bowl where they blew out Iowa. And it was the beginning of that 2 3 4 5 6 run of teams that Reggie was in. And I was around the program a lot. I was out of practice a lot. I knew uh, Tim Tessalone, who's the uh, sports information director, was very good. And, and I got a awesome. really great closing, close working relationship with him, knew the ins and outs. When the Reggie Bush thing hit and all that hit, and then Pete took the job in Seattle, 
I think the the common chorus was, oh, he's leaving a burning house. Of course he's going to leave now. And I think that that era at USC and what they did is just, it's so misunderstood because it was not rife with cheating. This was, it was not a, a broken machine. You know, the, the, there was one or two guys, including Reggie, that broke rules that we can all argue about. But this, from what I knew and what I witnessed, I think Pete Carroll's legacy as a head college football coach uh, is not on level with what they did because that was a unbelievable run. And I, I just, it's sort of sad, I think, if you're a USC fan because they got hammered. I mean, hammered by the NCAA. That was a massive level punishment that was handed down for what, I think was two or three guys breaking the rule when it was all done. One of the most exciting and fun teams, uh, uh, you know, of all time. And they were, they were, uh, yeah, just absolutely, absolutely rolling, rolling with it. And, uh, you know, if you get rid of those rules and you stop worrying about whether Reggie's making a dollar on the side, there's no scandal and nobody cares. Yeah. You know, the, the whole argument was this, we only want to watch you because you're an amateur. And, and I mean, they got rid of this in the Olympics in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Amateurism started in the late 1800s in England. I'll make this brief because I'm, I'm sure you didn't think I'd go in this direction. I like it. Um, I like late it. 1800s. But this is what happened, okay? So back then, you had rich guys who could go to their country club and play uh, the elites, the royals, all of that. They could compete in their uh, sports, right? Polo, whatever, the horse jumping, all that stuff. And the, the working class, the proletariat, had to work uh, six days a week in factories in miserable conditions, right? Terrible time. Yeah. And those guys, better athletes, are as good, but they didn't have any time to practice. So what started happening was the rich guys at the clubs would pay one of their workers and say, yeah, you're going to practice and you're going to be on my rugby team now. Mm. Look, I'm taking this guy. And they started doing it. So what they did was the, everyone got together and said, no, no, no. You have to play from the love of the game. You can't get paid to play. This is what amateurism. You can't be paid to play. You have to play because you love it. Paid to you love it because you got time because you're rich. Mm. So it was a, con, it was a <laughs> construct of rich dudes. Okay. Trying he said, to, we play for the love of the game. So we play for the love of the game because I got Even, time to sail. And you don't have time to sell because you got to work to feed your kids. So it was a construct mm. designed to cheat and unlevel the playing field by rich guys. And yet somehow the damn thing took hold and the mm. Olympic committee did it. And then the NCAA did it and it, and they sold it as some piece of Americana. It's a horrible idea. It was a horrible idea the day they started it. Let the guys make, you can't sit there and say, oh, can't make your money. So this is where the whole thing started. The, the sooner it's gone, they said, well, nobody's going to watch the Olympics because we, we want these amateurs. Really? Like, does anyone well, it's care gone. that yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone it's... care that SUNY Lee uh, steps up and wins the gold medal in gymnastics and she also has a, a deal for a leotard? She's going to be in a commercial and then she's going to go to Auburn this fall and compete. And you could she might actually come to your town. You can watch SUNY Lee compete in gymnastics. No, it's phenomenal. Great. It is. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's nothing bad about this. This is a great thing. Yeah. And they're finally getting over it. This whole thing is going to change dramatically. And you're, and people will look back and go, my God, I can't believe we, we clung to this. And, and I will say some sports are going to close. Athletic departments are going to get smaller. All those things are going to go. And in my opinion, that's the market. 
Yeah, I see it that way. Uh, yeah, on a lot of levels, Dan. So thank you. Uh, this has been All terrific. Right. Dan Wetzel. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Fire it up. <laughs> you can find him uh, Yahoo Sports, yahoo.com. College Football Inquirer is the podcast. You can find that at Yahoo Sports and also wherever you find your podcast, just like this one. And Dan, it's been a pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. I really appreciate Anytime, it. Anytime, Ed. Appreciate it. Talk okay. to you soon. Thank you. Thanks again, Dan. You can read Dan's work on Yahoo.com and Yahoo Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Wetzel. His podcast, College Football Inquirer, can be found anywhere you find podcasts. And he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He has a series of books called Epic Athletes aimed at younger readers to get to know some of today's best athletes. From Serena Williams to Tom Brady, Alex Morgan, and Steph Curry. They have 10 books available. You can find Epic Athletes wherever you buy your books. Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham is a production of True Stories Incorporated. This episode was produced by me and edited by Ryan Lindsay. With a very special thanks to Zach Rosenfield of the Rosenfield Media Group for helping put this episode together. Thanks, Zach. The Believe team on the Let's Huddle beat are producer Alex Tosopoulos, audio engineer Carter, Cam Rogers and Connor Haynes, who help out with marketing. Cam also hosts Golf Bets on Us, a golf betting show on the Believe Podcast Network. And my first contact with Team Believe, Bron Husenstam, the chief exec. Thanks, everyone. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a review wherever you listen. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Let's Huddle With. Facebook page, Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham. Instagram, Let's underscore Huddle underscore With underscore Ed. And if you want to come right to the source, the show's webpage, you can go to Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. You can scroll through their deep lineup and then search up Let's Huddle to get to our homepage. Reach out. Let us know what you think. Make some suggestions, any corrections. But do so patiently. Social media is new to me and the show. So this DIY platform of podcasting, we have our training wheels on. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.